0: and welcome to another episode of the Military Mindset for Business podcast. My name is Pete Liston and I'm your host. Uh, Today, I'm talking to Chris Reese Edwards. Chris is a former army engineer, uh, award-winning entrepreneur and innovator, someone who really is fascinated and gets right into the digitization of businesses and processes, uh, award-winning author, um, TED Talk guy, you know, really fascinating discussion. We go down a few little rabbit holes, you know, we talk about a lot of Chris's research into death and dying, and part of you know, state-sanctioned violence, and is, is it ever okay you know, to take another person's life? Through to his career, studying uh, in Estonia, working on digital health programs in Europe, um, you know, a really interesting chat. So welcome to the Military Mindset for Business podcast. I hope you enjoy it. G'day, Chris. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Pete. Yourself? Good, mate. I'm really good. I'm interested to chat today because we've crossed paths a few times. Few times. Former army guy, former uh, Royal Australian Engineer, combat engineer. uh, Moved, transitioned out of the military a little while ago uh, into business. Particularly, uh, you've got into tech space, startup space, accelerator space. You've been. uh, You're an author. You've travelled the world, uh, studying uh, entrepreneurship and. Mate, um, you've also got uh, an interesting TED talk about, you know, is death and um, murder and killing, you know, legitimate and legal. Um, So who knows where this chat will go to. Um, But first of all, like what I'd like to do is just as I, I, you know, whenever I talk to any uh, AJ or army jerk or military person (laughs) is tell us how did you end up in how did you end up
1: in the green? Um. Look, I grew up in the 80s and it was Schwarzenegger and Stallone on TV. And so I guess I saw in one of your previous interviews, you one of the gentlemen suggested you, you're a mercenary, a maverick, a missionary or a mystic yeah. is yeah, one of the reasons yeah. that drives it. So my mum was very active in government. So I had a very mission orientation around serving my country, you know, my family with my sisters, and my mum, we have almost 50 years of combined public service between us because we believe in serving your country. But um, I was also a bit of a misfit. Uh, I was top of my class in English, art and computers and didn't want to finish uh, year 12. So I signed up and I was in on barracks down in uh, Aubrey, Wodonga, six weeks after I signed the dotted line, you know, as a training to become a plumber and gas fitter so I could become a combat engineer. Because
0: you so this to, is uh, so this it. is uh, literally straight out of high school. Is it year 12? I'm done. Yeah, here we go. Army, here we go.
1: No, I, I got to the end of year 11 and I said to my mom, I'm not finishing school. You know, We're very bookish in my family. We've all got multiple degrees. Yeah. But I said, I don't want to do this. And she said, well, the only other thing you've talked about is the military. And yeah. I want you to have time doing discipline and serving your country. So I came home two days later and there was a major in full uniform sitting in the front of the house waiting for me. I was ambushed. And you um, pretty much agreed on the time. Went and did testing. About two weeks later, was accepted. Four weeks later, was on barracks. Three weeks later,
0: how's that? Um, now the school. Uh, well, it was the Army Apprentice School back then. It was a multi-core school for the Royal Australian Electrical Mechanical Engineers, uh, who were who were the the fitters and turners and the mechanics and the uh, the oh, electricians. Uh, sorry, not electricians. Electrical. Uh, God, I'm stretching it out. Oh, you had
1: yeah diesel fitters, all the diesel bottoms, fitters. basically, uh, electrical yep. sig- signals, all those guys. And then on the other side, you had engineers, which is construction trades, electricians, engineers, roofers. Oh, sorry, construction engineers, roofers, plumbers, and uh, chippies.
0: Got it. So basically build a house. And, yep. and the other one is support other army systems. Um, yeah, pretty the other, much. The two yeah. groups there. So what was it like down at, uh, what's it like as a young fella to, uh, you know, like 16, 17, 18, whatever you were, um, where did you come from? First of all,
1: Uh, I grew up in Northern Rivers in a retirement village called Alstonville, which is between Barna and Lismore.
0: Dude, I used to live in Alstonville. I know. uh, Austin (laughs) Austin Avenue. I was there. uh, My life took me. Uh, at a certain time about just after, well, September 11th, 2001, uh, we all remember that date, uh, I was living in Ulsterville as a cut flower grower. Well, oh, by wow. that I mean a labourer <laughs> on a farm at a little place called uh, Rouse, and there was a beautiful place called Dalwood Falls there. I remember jumping off. Yeah,
1: gorgeous. Yeah. Off the That's the first place I ever jumped off. Yep. Um, um, well, you know, the big sports field is there. I was right next to that in housing commission. I grew up pretty yep. much on the poverty side of the town, which is now a very affluent area as a hobby farm location, but 80% of the population was over 60. So as a yeah. teenage boy, I could not wait to get out. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a beautiful part of the world, but funny, small
0: towns is we grew up in small towns. Like for me, I grew up in Katoomba. The first thing I could think of is, you know, I wanted to get out and see the world a little bit. Um. So now you're in the army. Tell us about your army career.
1: It was interesting because I went in, as I said, fairly bookish. Um, So I was the class nerd. I graduated as top of our class with a communication award. And as I square gated out to accept my medal uh, because somebody <laughs> grabbed my arm on the way through, I was being yelled at as nerd because you know you you're not supposed to stand out in some ways in the military, you know, especially not for academics. Um so finding your own identity was in- interesting coming from a broken home where I grew up with two sisters and a very strong mum. Very female oriented background into a very male oriented mm. sports um, space. But I uh, you know found my stride, found out very quickly that I was a distance runner. And so I ended up on inter-service sports, Army, Navy, Air Force, and we were just yep. blitzing it. Um, really did well at my trade, came second in Victoria for my trade, um, second in my class. And it was, I just really found my footing because I'd, I'd done construction work since the age of about 15, 16, being on site and had done work experience on site on a military barracks up in Bulimba in Brisbane and really loved putting stuff together and destroying stuff. So I just, I found a really nice niche for me. And then, um The flexibility of just being able to, you know, in Townsville, I was on 24 hours notice to move and you'd be sent away on exercise or overseas with little warning. And just knowing that you had a certain set of skills and the flexibility of mind and practice to actually do really interesting stuff that kept you engaged.
0: And if you love putting things together or blowing them up, uh, the the call of engineers is absolutely a square peg in a square hole.
1: Oh, look, it's a rugby team with rocket launchers is the way I tend to describe it. It's like the bridges that we used to build um, made of all this iron that are sometimes six man lift for a single component, which when they're finished, they can span pretty decent spans because if you look at the line of war, special forces goes in first to work out where the enemy is, get a lay of the land. Engineers come in second to actually clear minefields, lay minefields, put in bridges, um, put in airstrips, and then infantry comes in. And then the last guys out are typically engineers because we've got to clean up the mess. And in that whole scope of um, o- operations, there's a range of tasks you can do from fire support bases to actually being out there at the front looking for IEDs and things like that. And it's uh, it's just a really diverse role that is a very blokish role. It's perfect.
0: Man, it's one of the things that like, uh, from my experience in Afghanistan, I've had quite a few combat engineers uh, on the program and it's got to be, uh, you know, I think they are the iconic characters of, um the afghanistan war you know the guys out the front um sweeping the paths you know with the mine sweep uh with the wine sweepers the metal detectors um really it's it, it is such an iconic picture of my experience in my mind of you know what that place was all about now tell us about uh how long did you spend in the army uh
1: 90 to 98 yeah then 90 two so- years part-time yeah
0: so really, um, in terms of our, where the world was at that time, we're sort of getting to the end of the great peace uh, in terms of, <laughs> you know, we always look at it as a fortunate, well, most uh, people in the military look at it as a fortunate thing, you know, to deploy and, and, and probably what, 99, 2000 is when East Timor kicked off. But you, you came right through that end of that period of good old fashioned, uh, you know, back to basic soldiering.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. Um, we were peacetime soldiers. Uh, we had Rwanda kick off around about 95, 96. Yep. And I missed I missed out on that by one ballot. So I ended up in Bo- Bougainville three months later when it, it was rated by the UN as the most violent place on the planet. We were being yeah. chased by headhunters carrying human remains. Um, and it was interesting because what we lacked in operational tempo, we made up for on, you know, Swift Eagle, Tandem Thrust. Um, the guys are going on Long Look. We had... Um, yeah. I was an engineer liaison to the ninth Engineer Support Battalions when they came across here from Hawaii, showing them how Australian engineers do our job. And so there was a lot of training cycle to go out there, and be in the field and practice what we've been taught. And there was always something as an engineer to build or blow up, which kept us really busy. Now,
0: what is it uh, at this point, and you now you've done nearly 10 years, that's enticing you to look at a life outside of the military?
1: Actually, credit to my warrant officer at the time, Ross Mills, who's no longer with us, unfortunately, but I dedicated my first book to because as I was looking to re-up, I was a little bit disillusioned because we were sent to Bougainville ostensibly as a peacekeeping force just secure a town for the peace talks between the Bougainville Republican Army and the New Union Defence Force. And we found out as we were coming back to Australia, we were mostly there for political reasons to get a $1 billion gas pipeline approved and we were playing good local citizen. And that really got a lot of us nose out of joint because that's why America was in Iraq and things like this, protecting oil. And we never thought we'd be dragged into things like that. So that put a bad taste in my mouth and I was discussing it with Ross Mills And he said, you've got a big brain and there's more you could do. um, And you're just going to stagnate here and be pushed through the ranks and sit in an office and you're going to hate it. He said, so consider university, do me a favor, just apply for a business degree and see how you go. And I got in straight away. And so I put in my Ds pretty much as soon as I got the acceptance letter and was in university once again, because I moved at a fairly fast tempo six weeks later.
0: Because you must have been like, you know, if you joined the army at what, 17, you're still in your mid mid to late 20s.
1: Yeah. yeah yeah yeah. i think it's about 26 or something like that yeah
0: yeah how you having been to bougainville and seeing that place do you have a like a connection with what's going on at the moment you know could it be the next you know the newest country in the world do you still keep in touch of bougainville affairs
1: i do um because we were over there as part of the south pacific peacekeeping force with tongans near vanuatu fijians and these guys have just got back from israel lebanon you know, just incredible frontline soldiers as well, too, and big boys, which I'll never make the mistake of playing rugby against again. But um, I've, I've gone to a couple of their weddings over there. Um, a lot of us have gone back to places around Bougainville and PNG over the years and stayed in touch. And social media has made that a lot easier. But, you know, I wish them the absolute best because Australia has a responsibility. When we collapse that mine there outside of Arawa, we collapse their whole economy. And, um, you know, there's, we went into Arawa and it was just burnt out village, just destroyed. And it was only a couple of years before that, that this was a thriving local area that was only ever expected to increase in, you know, success. Um, and so to see that they're only just now, and this is like 20 years later, bouncing back and likely to actually have independence and, uh, you know, have a role in their future is really exciting.
0: And it's a fascinating time for Australian, I, mean, I guess, geopolitics is the term we've got a lot of things happening in the Solomon Islands at the moment with political posturing, uh, you know, between us and the Chinese, we've got yeah. a refocus into Asia Pacific, uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that PNG was, I don't know what the right term is, uh, not a colony, but an extension of Australia. And that, you know, that's how we ended up having the the militia fighting there um, in World War Two. But Bougainville could be the world's newest country in a couple of years' time, I think, from memory. You know, 98% uh, vote in the referendum for independence. And it's just a matter of wait and see what, uh, what, goes, on over there, what goes on over there now.
1: I think it's going to be amazing for them globally mm. because they have been, as you said, the red-headed step-cousin of Australia for a long time and treated yeah. accordingly almost as an afterthought. And having met these people and seen what they've gone through and stayed in touch and watched over the years... I have my fingers crossed and I'm very hopeful that uh, if we had this conversation in 10 years time from now, I think we'll be telling a very different story about that part of the world.
0: Yeah. And like for me, I know that when um, I went to East Timor, the place was relatively young. Uh, and again, it was the newest country in the world at that time. Mm. And again, we're, we're neighbors here. We've got an obligation to uh, how we support you know our neighbors and our friends in the Pacific and in, in Southern Asia. And uh, not only for, a, it's the right thing to do, but also from a strategic perspective. But um, Absolutely. Hey, before we go down before we get down the rabbit hole of uh, geopolitics in the uh, (laughs) area, um, mate, what is it say it's time to get out. You've gone to university. What's
1: next for you in terms of uh, unpacking this pathway forward? Uh, It's a lifelong learner. I'm on degree number four at the moment um, because I like learning. I just get really bored. I only sleep four hours a night. So I've been working full time for 20 something years and doing degrees around that barring once where I took a year and a half off to do a, a master's and when I went and did one year at university doing a business undergraduate degree, I realized when speaking with people in industry, it was absolutely useless degree. All it proved was you yeah. could study, had no application whatsoever. So I took a year off and went up to the Sundays, lived on Brampton Island and was the activities and entertainment manager doing karaoke and volleyball for a year. Nice. Um, that, I can't sing. So it was even better and that was great i met someone from the tech sector which was somebody from census which is yellow pages online and they said you've got the gift of the gab come down to sydney we'll pay you your army base salary as a starter and you'll earn the same amount again as commission and i moved into tech there having only had an email address for about two years and um and suddenly i'm selling online advertising to um franchisees of Jim's Boeing, for example and going out there, and I've got tattoos from my military days, and they loved seeing a guy who would speak plainly with my terrible military haircut. Um, I was wearing white socks with suit pants and slip-on shoes. I, I was an absolute I atrocious mess. Um, try, trying to play civilian. Um, but I did incredibly well there because I was speaking to people like human beings. I wasn't an accountant or a lawyer. I could show up, have a beer with you, have a chat with you, say, here's what the data says 150 people last week looked for a mowing contractor in this area. It's going to cost you $60 a month. Do you want to participate? Yes, no. Over mm-hmm. beers and just real chats. And I just blitzed the sales targets, became a national number one salesperson, and went, there's something to this tech sector. There was no Google, there was no social media, there was no content management systems for websites. It was all very early days after the tech wreck in the States. And um, I, one of my clients at yellow pages poached me from there and I helped him digitize an analog business, which was sold to a publishing company for a good chunk of figures a few years later. And that just kind of set this course to news core Clemenger two startups and uh, all the rest is history. As they say. One of the things I'm always fascinated
0: about, because I love business. I'm in love with business. Uh, I love talking shop. I love talking to people who talk shop. Uh, now, Explain to us, uh, for those out there, the differences between going into a small and medium enterprise, like something that you bootstrap, you start yourself, that's all about you, versus going into the startup space of tech, and what the difference between scalability in that business model versus, hey, look, I'm just, I'm a great electrician, I'm going to go and create an electrical business. Can you tell, share us a bit of your
1: experience about around scalability and and how the tech space is different? Well, I think it's interesting. You've mentioned quite a few interviews, command and control. Um, And I'd argue the other C for me is commitment. When you go into a business that you're fulfilling a role for somebody else, it's very explicit what you're doing. And Rand Fishkin, who was really big in the SEO world during the um, early 2000s, he has this way of explaining staff as being T-shaped. So the vertical is your area of subject matter expertise. And then the horizontal part of the T is your knowledge of the stuff to the left and right of you. And so... For me, mine was actually understanding the value that digital could do and then all the key components of like SEO, um, content, uh, design, uh, mobile, all those kind of things around there. So I was dangerous enough to be able to ask dumb questions and um, go in the right direction. So as a startup, you need to know all of those things. So I'm in love with business as well, too. I find it fascinating. This is why I'm doing my PhD in this is because there's so many components to it. And I've done well at times and I've done poorly at times. And I can understand when it was ecosystem factors and I can now understand in hindsight, what was the mistakes I made, were the mistakes I made. And um, I think when you're a startup, everything's on you. And your ability and your courage to outsource uh, when you when you're in a domain you don't fully understand is one thing. Uh, I think what the army does really well is give us the courage to have a really high risk appetite, which I think is what veterans bring into the workforce really well, but have the courage to take big swings back yourself and go in guns blazing Um, and you know risk isn't such a big thing if you're not um, it's not risking life it's very different you know you're risking your economic life and maybe your family's ability to actually have a nice dinner out next week, because you have to pay bills. But uh, when you're working for somebody else, I mean, it's great because you build up your domain expertise until you get to a point where you have the confidence and the competence to go out and do it for yourself. And I think it's that's actually about, what I've learned. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's interesting to talk about outsourcing because it's been one of the, you know, the big defining factors uh, in our success in business is really understanding you know, what you're great at and what the highest use of your time is and really applying yourself to that, to that use of you know, operating in your highest space as much as possible. You know, the t- life's short, time's precious. Um, and there's things that we do that can really uh, the drive leverage in terms of uh, getting to our next level of success. And there's things that ultimately bog us down in administration. So for me, one of the things I've always been really passionate about is business owners uh, should only do two things. We should do the things that we love um, because we're the owner, we're the boss, we get to choose what we love. Um, but the second one is we should only do what only we can do. Everything else should go on your to-don't list. You know, don't build a to-do list, build a to-don't list. Create uh, you know, a mind state of, I don't like to use the word selfishness, but selfishness and protection of your own time. So for me, outsourcing is, is critical and and it's one of the reasons we started, you know, an outsourcing agency where we've got a couple hundred staff that do this for other people on a daily basis. Um, but what's the first business that you actually opened and had a crack at?
1: Uh, It was the one that was taking the analog business online. So I was given a percentage of that business and full control to actually turning it into a digital entity. It was a publishing company. All of their business was done via direct mail. It was all in print. And uh, it was very easy to understand the value of what online could deliver. So we cut Mm -hmm. our costs by 85% and made it a lot more expedient and had a bigger upsell because we were delivering value to people in almost real time rather than this two-week delay on print. And I, I worked it out pretty quickly um, with them that this is what I was going to be able to deliver. I wrote a um, lean canvas business plan, you know, a single yep. page business plan for them and overnight and then presented it to him the next day over lunch. And he was blown away. But was a, you know I started studying business at that stage. I'd seen other people do it as I'd met with all these business owners through Yellow Pages. And I had enough information to be dangerous and to present a case that I knew more than he did on what could happen. And they backed me on it. And so that was a great success in that sense. And that gave me courage to keep taking more swings over the years. I love the uh,
0: lean methodology. Um, I've done, I think it's green belt or whatever that first course is. Um, one of the things you talked about education is, uh, you know, the fact that you've completed degrees. Uh, I love it. I love learning. I love uh, again, uh, an aspirin of lifelong learning, but I, I find it hard to finish things and wow. like I've started four degrees, but I have no degree. <laughs> um, but I, but I keep consuming, uh, I keep consuming info and I really loved the lean methodology. Um, you know, I've read the lean startup, which is a fantastic book for anyone you know looking to get into any kind of, you know, uh, any kind of business whatsoever, but tell us about the value of that actual act of doing your, your lean canvas to start and how that either accelerated your success or provided the framework for the next steps.
1: Well, I think the one thing that military teaches you with T's tests of elementary training is to break everything down into chunks, manageable mm. chunks. You don't give someone a Carl Gustav rocket launcher and say, pull the trigger, go. You show them how the ring on the back reduces vibration, where the trigger action is, where the safety is, how to hold it, yeah. how everyone works together. And you break it down. And I think what the Lean Canvas does is ostensibly breaks down the key components of a business what should be a successful business into eight to 10 categories. And that's the product, your unique selling proposition, the market demand, your competitors, the hygiene factors, how you're going to make money, what the money looks like, um, where you're going to get money from to grow, all of these key components that you need to understand before you should even get a credit card to fund it or apply to actually get money to start it. And I said, that for me has been really useful in creating one pages Um, and one page on different parts of those components of a lean canvas. So when I was at News Corp in 2007 to 2010, when they started taking digital really seriously, I was one of the first product people there. I started creating one pages on key parts of the business. So if somebody came to me with a problem, they had to have a solution. And then I gave them a framework on that one page. Don't present any more than that on what your business case is to address this problem. So don't come up and say, hey, we can't get this done. Fill in that, come to me, we'll discuss it and let's work out how to do it. And that's become a template I've adopted over the years. So I'll do a lean canvas first, understand the opportunities. If I can't answer all those questions, I don't have a business yet. So I have to go and find answers to those questions. Then when I have all of those and I'm comfortable with that, now it's to start breaking it out. And that ostensibly forms the backbone of the business plan. Yeah, and infusing some of the lean startup model into that, just understanding what that first basic
0: building block is that is going to be you know, realistic and achievable. Um, but one of the best things I love about lean is the concept that if you wait for something to be perfect, it's already way too late. And yeah. it really allows us to lean in and have a crack and test and adjust because whatever we take to market in the first place must change. If, if, it's, if it's not changing, you're probably missing something because you're not listening, you're not getting your feeds, You're not getting your intelligence or information. what's actually important to the customer. And this is how this is critical, particularly in tech and startup.
1: Oh, look, I see perfect as the enemy of good. And I'm writing a book, I'm writing a book about this at the moment about aiming lower. And aiming lower doesn't mean don't aim for the sun, but break it down into steps and have daily, daily steps that you can take or you'll be managing to get you towards the goal. Because I look at uh, when I had soldierly and we were building an app and releasing that in market and beta testing that with a hundred people over yep. the course of a 90 day trial, we did 27 iterations of that technology using machine learning, um, artificial intelligence, redesign of the UX and the UI to actually make that better and better and better and better, which is how we end up winning awards for it because we iterated on the fly. We were nimble. Yeah. We ha- I'd employed the right people who had domain expertise better than mine. I could ask the dangerous, dumb questions and set them free. Um, and yeah, so we as a company moved really, really quickly into a space that we had someone from Apple come to us and actually look to acquire our technology, mm. which we'd blundered into because it was in bioinformatic data to look at stress and health, ostensibly to serve the needs of veterans who are going through PTSD and issues. And we had the government support behind us, had the defense minister behind us. And because our goal was really, really clear. And I think that's the big thing. And you know, some people get into business, to, have a salary. you know. So the biggest, the most common startup business in Australia is either a cafe or like a, a hairdresser. And they yeah. have the, also the highest failure rate, right? And you're working all these incredible hours for probably 60 grand a year clear. And you're running yourself into the ground. Other people want to move the needle like you do with your business, like I'm trying to do with what we're doing now is that uh, I I want to succeed. Absolutely. I want a decent lifestyle, but I also want to have a legacy. And um, whether that legacy is forever or just for the moment to shape the next generation, as long as I'm part of that, that's why I keep learning. That's why I keep taking swings for the fence.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about Soldierly. Uh, in 2019, you were one of the finalists in the Prime Minister's Veteran Employment Awards for that particular business. Um, yep. I'm, I'm wearing my Apple Watch here um, that I love, gives me data on you know, my activity feed every day. Um, tell us a little bit about Soldierly, what it did, how you started it and
1: where it went to. Um, starts with the dark story. I've been married twice. I've uh, tanked them both admirably with uh, military efficiency in very short periods of time, unfortunately. So I've been fortunate enough to have loved two wonderful women, but just be a really poor husband because I grew up in a lot of violence and I've had PTSD before I joined the military. But, um, what I ended up with, I was in Thailand on a year long honeymoon with my first wife. We broke up. And I ended up on top of a building after drinking a huge amount of vodka in a couple of days. And I was contemplating, this is the engineer in me, if the drop was enough to actually take my life, if I so decided to step forward. And I was interrupted by an SMS and it broke my chain of thought. And having been in the tech sector for 10 or so years, at least explicit tech development, it got me thinking about, oh, tech just disrupted a very dangerous train of thought how could we use tech at scale through really available technology like phones and smart devices to actually do this to actually prevent um people going into spirals and so i cottoned on to the idea after a lot of research into tracking bioinformatic data which is heart rate extrapolating heart rate variability using machine learning which is the best signal um, heart rate variability for measuring stress in the human system and then creating an alert triage process on the watch and the phone that would guide you through a calming um, process and then also connect you with like lifeline for example or your partner if you were still spiraling for them to support you and when we did the actual beta trials of this we had 100 people using it over 90 days we found that uh, there was three stages of triage a breathing exercise a guided meditation and then connecting to real people 68 percent of people over the course of that trial got through to that last screen where they're looking for really um, real human support But what we also realized was breaking people's state and making them aware of what was causing them stress over the course of the 90 days reduced their stress frequency, intensity, and duration by around 40 to 50%. So they weren't Mm. suffering as much from the same causes of stress. So that's where we realized we're we're onto something here. Um, So your watch didn't just become a watch that gave you time and some useful data. Your watch started to change your life. Mm.
0: Now, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and this is where, like, I believe that you know innovation and entrepreneurship are at the cutting edge of taking, you know, taking civilization forward, you know, and how we actually creating, you know, change for good. Um, what about your writing? You've, you've published a few things. You've talked, you've been on stage on doing a Ted talk. Let's go through your books first and um, some uh-huh. of your publications and the things that you've written and what you're working on at the moment. And then I'd like to understand how do you get on a Ted talk?
1: Um. Oh, actually, the TED talk directly rel- uh, relates to my first book. So, my first book, I was in, um, I was at News Corp at the time. I was doing part-time work as a journalist, but I was a product owner. I looked after money, business, and technology on news.com.au across the whole of Australia. And um, I started writing articles because my staff weren't writing the articles I wanted. And that's me being a, you know, I think you were talking about disc profiles with somebody recently, yep. and I'm very much a, a D and an I. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, if I if I want an outcome, I just do it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and I've had to learn to soften over the years as well too. So I've learned a lot about that, but at the time, euthanasia was coming back up. Uh, So Australia was the first country in the world to actually legalise euthanasia through medical Mm -hmm. uh, practitioners. It's called the Roti Act back in the early nineties, and Dr. Philip Nitschke was in the news about Exit International, which is his company that actually helps people understand how to take their own lives if they've got intractable cancer or whatever it might be. Yep. And, um, I thought this guy was a murderer when I first saw the news. And I was kind of, I want to write an article about how terrible it is that people should give up and you should encourage people to give up or show them how to. Yeah. And then I started doing my research into it. And then I thought, this is interesting. And I brought it up in a conversation with a bunch of guys who were operators. We'd all served together, both in the military, as well as the private sector doing, you know, security protection and I just said, look, this is what I've been thinking about is like this idea of were we ever legally sanctioned to take lives? And I know in your last couple of interviews, you were talking to someone about ethics of what we do as soldiers. You know, we can lie, cheat, steal, take lives um, in service of country. And it's institutionalized, right? And it's legitimized by our service. And we started thinking about different ways around the world where death was inculcated or institutionalized, anything from like in India, where honor killings is common in China infanticide with a missing generation of women, 50 million missing Chinese girls from the one child policy. Um, You know, everything from uh, partners, killing partners in domestic violence, right through to soldiers, state execution in Texas. And we came up with a list of 30 different ways in which uh, we've kind of appropriated this ending of the most, sanctity of life is probably the the biggest tenant, right? Uh, That's the one thing I think we hold to be true, is that life is dear um, and the military has a very different lens on that but I understand that in taking life, you're protecting life and so I could justify that this young little hipster dude came across to our table five big military guys with jugs of beer in front of each of us and just said, you guys are animals, we don't need people like you anymore, Uh, there's never a good reason to kill and so the name of the book came about from the conversation, so the book is called Good Reasons to Kill and it's 21 stories of people I've interviewed or researched around the world who've taken a life for a range of reasons. And that's what got me, that's what got me the TED talk through um, QUT up in Brisbane was they, uh, someone had read it, reached out to me and said, would you like to take this to the stage? And I talked about three specific incidents of how life had been taken um, and why. And what i learned from that whole experience was I went looking for killers, but what I found was real people like you and I. And these weren't soldiers. These were wives who'd been in domestic violence and ended up taking their husband's lives. It was mums who'd actually given up their child to go to a room and cry itself to death because of the one child policy in China. And it was um, just a range of really normal people. And I was really humbled by that whole process. And that really spawned me to actually go to university and do a postgrad in creative writing. So I could write that story with the honesty it deserved. And that's led me to work on two more books since and got me on stage around the world and, uh, just, I always loved the written word and I love bringing that to the stage as well too. But I think there was, this is part of my legacy. That book has spawned so many conversations since 2015 when it came out and still does now.
0: Mate, I think it's very fascinating. Um, for me, being brought up in a very, very conservative religious household, uh, you know, death was something you talked about. You know, what happens when you die and what happens, you know, what happens next? But in, I, uh you now growing up in Katoomba, sometimes it was tough to find a job, you know, a small town and I found myself, I sort of fell into being a nurse in nursing homes. So as an 18, 19 year old guy, if there's one place you can get lots of work, well, back then you've got to actually do training and certificates now, but because you're young and fit and you could help lift people, um, I had as much work in nursing homes for years and years and years. But it was really interesting because I was quite exposed to death and dying there. Like That's what these places are about. It's not they're not pleasant, um, particularly in the early 90s um, when I was there. Just literally come to work and be like, "Well, Mrs. Jones, uh, she'll probably pass away this afternoon. Let's just see if you can make it comfortable." Yeah. And sitting with people and watching their last breath, watching their last breaths, um, it led me to uh, I don't know why, but back when there was video easy and video stores, uh, I, so- I remember seeing a video called Executions. And I got home from the pub at two o'clock in the morning. It was about, must be 1994 or something like that. And I watched it and I was just like, I don't know why this sort of macabre um, fascination, uh, I guess, or maybe it's just, uh, maybe it's macabre in Australia, maybe in the rest of the world, it's life as normal or death as normal or business, is, business as usual. But it really, it, I've been really fascinated about, it, uh, about this space as well. I read a book before I joined the army called Live by the Sword, Die by the Sword, which is uh, was written by uh, the Anglican Padre at the time. Um, uh, but I do remember one thing that affected me was Sukumar and, and Chen, um, the two Aussie lads who were executed in Indonesia a few years ago. Yeah, And I remember um, you know, it's so flippant for us to say, oh, the death penalty for you know rapists and the death penalty for all this kind of stuff. Um, but I remember those two lads, as it happened, I went to a, uh, a bit of a vigil outside the Indonesian embassy. Cause I was living in South Coogee right behind Ramwick barracks. The Indonesian consulate was literally, uh, just around the corner. Yeah. Um, and it really affected me, um, when, you know, f- feeling the moments of those two lads, you know, as they were escorted you know, from Bali through to the Island and, and then away we go. So, Um, really credit to you for talking about this stuff, because I think in particularly in the Western world where, you know, with my experience, when people get old, let's put them in a nursing home. um, There's not this family death at home thing that happens very regularly.
1: Yeah, I think it's it, it is definitely a Western luxury to value life where I've been in Africa and I've been in parts of Asia where life is cheap. And death is not such a big thing. And some people believe in reincarnation. Some people, it's just like, it's the passing of a time. Um, And I still find, look, that writing that book, and I spoke to and researched over 250 people over three to four years to write that. And it messed me up quite a bit. Um, And I remember I was driving home with a girlfriend at the time over Sydney Harbour Bridge. And this guy on a motorbike cut off a Volvo wagon, mistimed it, and she drove straight over him. And I was first Mm -hmm. on the scene. so And she drove over his head. And so I've, I jumped out of the car, said to Lisa, I said, drive the car across the bridge. I'll see you in a couple of minutes. So let me take t- care of this. Ran up. Um, his head was a mess. You don't take the helmet off. Rule number one. So I watched mm-hmm. him take his last breath. Ambo showed up, handed in my details, directed traffic, ran across the car, jumped in the car, drove Lisa home. And uh, she didn't speak to me for a couple of weeks. And, and then when I did run into her, I said, so what's going on? She said, um, I can't be friends with someone like you. And I said, why is that? And because we're trained to run towards the bang in the military, whereas civilians are trained to run away. And she said, you didn't react. I said, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. She says, but you're not a soldier now. I said, no, you're a soldier forever. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad I've got that part of me ripped away in a sense, because I want to be that guy. I want to be dependable in times of turmoil. But at the same time, I have to recognize having been a poor husband is that my PTSD and that survivability mode, my fight or flight or freeze mode Mm. takes over in conflict and that's not healthy in a relationship. So that's one of my own learnings over the years is that book cost me a lot more than just time and effort. And I'm still coming to terms with some of it, but I'm glad I did it because that's the same thing as being a soldier. You go through a lot of bloody hard times, but um, I don't think you see too many guys and women who've served their country who regret it. Yeah. Pushing yourself
0: and pushing your own uh, mental boundaries into this space it's funny hmm. you mentioned the car accident thing. Uh, I was probably second car on the scene of a head-on uh, between Grafton and um, Ballina uh, many, many years ago before I joined the army. And I remember it was everyone was sort of like standing around just going like, I, for the first time in my life, I, I saw what it means to be trapped in a car. Like this person was not getting out. The car was folded over the top of them and there was no way to get them out. Yeah. Um, and then a guy walked over and I was just talking to the person in the car trying to say, Hey, it's all right. Just relax. You know, obviously I don't know why I said that, but this army dude this guy came over and he goes, "I'm in the Army, you do this, you do that, you go over here." And the second they came onto the scene and provided a structure and guidance to that mm-hmm. moment, it was all good, even though the the people were in t- terrible trouble in the car and and I, I don't know what happened. I think they survived. you know within within twenty minutes, the helicopter was there, but having that one person, as soon as he said, "I'm in the army um I know what to do here. Everybody just followed these directions and everybody had a sense of calm that came out of a moment where it's just like, uh, you know, it was just chaos. So I really, I really admire that person. And, and, you know, if the the moment ever comes, you know, we'll use that example in, in my own time.
1: Well, I think the um the one thing that I'm really proud of is that we have the confidence instilled into us to create calm from chaos. And yeah. then people people feed off that energy. I've been on quite a few accident scenes over the years, including back in my military days where we've scraped mates out of cars. Uh, you know, Moorbank Avenue, for example, used to be the drag strip during the early nineties. Yeah. The guys would yeah. race each other, block off the street, they'd be drunk sometimes. Thankfully they've got rid of a lot of that behavior but we'd have to pull parts of guys out of cars sometimes and civilians are just mortified you know um and it's like well you know i know this guy I served with this guy i'm now scraping him out of a car and we've already someone's jogged back to barracks to go and get an ambulance mm-hmm. to come and you know, pick up the remains of the mps and we don't blink and you blink later the job is not to blink, blink in the later. moment yeah, yeah and it's um and I know no yes as i said earlier look i i don't regret that i have those skills it's just there's a time and a place and i think one of the challenges that I see with a lot of my mates who've left and also my international military mates is adjusting to the slower tempo of civilian life. Uh, because all that, the rah, rah is gone, you know, and then the big purpose is gone and finding a new purpose and then finding, hitting a stride on CB street can be quite challenging. And uh, that's something that we should really recognize.
0: Yeah. And that's an important point. Now, I just want to pick up something you mentioned there is even though you go through that moment, uh, some people manage the moment well, and some people uh, really are challenged by that, those moments uh, in later life. And we're all, we all operate differently in terms of how, they, how these things swing back around to affect us later. Um, but I might just switch tacks, totally switch tacks after, after being in uh, you know, a bit of a morbid hole there. But a fa- <laughs> for me, a fascinating hole in terms of you know, having the ability to go in there and have these conversations and, the, and these quite real conversations and not just um, have them hidden under the curtain. Uh, mate, you won an award in 2019, uh, Global Entrepreneur of the Year. Um, can you talk us about that award? What did you win it for and uh, what were you doing at the time?
1: Um, I actually won two Global Innovation Awards in the same year. And then that was the same year I was on the Prime Minister's Veteran Entrepreneur of the Year finals. Um, that was for the soldierly um, technology that we created. So we've won the came third in the Zurich Global Innovation Championship which was given the award was given to us in Zurich, which was amazing. I'd never been snowed on in my life. So my first time (laughs) is in a 700 year old palace on the sides of um, Zurich uh, mountain, looking down across the town and being given this incredibly um, prestigious award and thanking my team for the blood, sweat and tears that went into it. Because half of my team then as is now was veterans and everyone was 100% committed to the goal. And then I was uh, asked to actually participate in the pitch for palace event Uh, So won the Australian round, won the APEC round, and then was named a Global Entrepreneur of the Year in London. This is the same time that Prince Andrew was in the headlines for all the wrong reasons. So I'm up (laughs) up there presenting in front of the royal family, and I have a naturally cheeky side to me that wants to address the ugly thing in the room. And my um, partner at the time was just saying, don't, don't. (laughs) You're in front of members of the royal family and the press. Do not say anything about Prince Andrew. Um, So I was a good boy. And that was that was great because that opened quite a few doors for us internationally, which is fantastic. And that actually ended up with me ending up in Estonia, working with the Estonian government on a digital health project, which took all the key learnings from soldierly and bioinformatic data and was about to roll it out as an international scale as the most digitized economy or country in the world. And then COVID hit. So this wonderful project we were working on, which was going to map using a range of biological data and lifestyle data, including voice, activity, diet, self-reflection data, journaling, um, and a bunch of all these other uh, triggers to actually feedback to local councils, which they have to do in Estonia. Every six months, they've got to report on the health and well-being of their citizens. And if you don't actually meet a certain standard, you don't get funding for programs mm-hmm. until you meet that standard. And when they have such a high incidence of death over there because of poor lifestyle choices, we could have really moved the needle. And it was it was a privilege to work on a project where I'm sitting down with the CIO of a country and the head of the opposition party to actually try and change people's lives. So that was a really nice trajectory. And I've taken a few years in between to move into doing PhD and uh, to start launching the next venture and work on a few books to work out what is the next big national crisis type thing I can work on. Because as I said, legacy is the driving purpose for me. And um, it took us a few years to work out what we want to do next, but um, we'll get to the point when I finish my PhD probably early year after next, we'll create an accelerator program for veterans to encourage them and guide them into how to move into entrepreneurship and then provide them with mentoring and funding. But at the same time, do um, our bit to actually address the national ho- housing crisis by bringing something to market that can be rapid build and affordable using veterans redeployed into the community because we're typically underemployed or underutilized by comparison to our civilian counterparts, which is a real shame.
0: Mate, um, I just I want to talk about innovation, but I, before we go into that, I just want to talk a little bit about what a what a cool, unique place Estonia is. So oh, yeah. I took um, I did a a long drive through Eastern Europe um, a few years ago, which uh, sort of did a whole heap of the Southern countries, sort of, you know, Austria, Slovenia, um, you know, Italy down there and worked my way up through Hungary went through Poland. Um, did a, uh, I dare say, maybe call it a, a homage to Auschwitz. Um, oh, well. Wow. And again, just on, on the, on the death and dying bit, uh, a brutal experience for me. Um, I had the kids there and my wife, I did not take them, um, to Auschwitz. I did a day trip <laughs> by myself, but, um, a, a brutal experience, to be honest, just to sort of be in that place and walk in, um, just walk on the ground where things happen. But then we moved through Poland, got up into Lithuania, Latvia, which I found, uh, obviously um, finding their new you know, place in the world, you know, post-Russia, and, you know, but they're still, uh, I, I think the term is Slavic in terms of uh, from an ethnicity perspective. But then we got into Estonia, which I never realized, which is more Nordic. So it's uh, more associated with uh, Sweden and the Scandinavian countries than the, uh, dare I say, the Russian, Lithuania, Latvia, um, yep, Ukrainian kind of culture. So excuse my lack of uh, cultural you know, articulation here. But Estonia, it's a fascinating place on how they are just driving forward with the digital
1: space infusing into everything that they do in their lives. Um, yeah, look, it's, um, and you talk about innovation, I went there specifically because they're the most innovative digital nation on the planet. Yeah. So when they retained their, regained their independence from Russia in 1991, Russia pulled out all the infrastructure. So the Estonian government at the time just said, well, how do we fix this? We need health, we need teleco, we need roads, we need power, we need all these facilities. So they engaged in one of the largest public-private partnership projects in the world, where they ostensibly went to Telstra and said, help us build a national telecommunications network. They went to all these providers around the world. And in a matter of uh, one generation, they became the most digitally sophisticated nation on the planet. And mm-hmm. I'm now I'm now an Estonian digital citizen, so I can travel there whenever I want. And There's 20,000 of us around the world because they realized we don't have all these resources. So we're going to be the melting pot of the world for the best in innovation. So come to Tallinn, come to Estonia, bring your technology, bring your ideas, help us keep moving forward. And they have, even the time I was there for a year and a bit, they just did such amazing things in response to COVID um, because they were able to leverage this whole of Europe and whole of world mindset. You've got Russian coders, Lithuanians, Finnish, you you name it. Everyone's sitting in this little melting pot of a town with this appetite that I have not seen. And if we could harness that in Australia with the talent we have here, um, yeah, it's the next Wi-Fi, that kind of mindset.
0: Yeah. Um, I think it's called the Estonian Digital Nomad Visa or something yeah, like yeah. That, that you can actually <laughs> yeah. get.
1: That's what I got when I went across there. Then you apply for digital citizenship and you get this card mm, and um, I no longer ever need a visa and I can travel there whenever I need to, as I, you know, see the world.
0: It's a funny because it's a funny thing because I've got another mate of mine, um, Michael Rhodes, shout out Rhodes. He actually uh, went to Estonia purely to study entrepreneurship. Um, And it was uh, just a random coincidence that, you know, um, we were traveling there and I bumped into him and and another mate said when I was over there, Um, but it really just, uh, it's the, Really just stunned me or surprised me that, again, it's a bit of you having the Australian blinkers on what's happening in these other little corners of the world. And they're not corners of the world to them. We're the corner of the world to them. But just the, just the advancements in innovation that this rather boutique little small country is just, is just really pounding forward with. Um, in terms of innovation, you're obviously rather scholastic and erudite, and you love to learn uh, and love to do formal learning. Where does innovation come? from for you like where does that creative edge to see opportunity and to go out and do something
1: about it um it's come from practice originally then i moved into academia and then put it back into practice It's become a per- perpetual loop is uh the ex- the best example was 2003 when i was asked to digitize an analog business and i had to have this mindset of what's possible, what do I understand we could do, and let's try and do it. And fail fast, which I've always really liked that idea. And then um, Sir Richard Branson's idea of employ people or surround yourself with people smarter than you. And when you put all those three kind of mindsets together, it's like a Venn diagram. And the delta is you sitting in the middle, herding all these cats, learning fast, being humble enough to admit when... um, things don't go right and being nimble enough intellectually as well as as a business to actually embrace something that might feel a little bit uncomfortable at first, but ultimately gives you what you want. So I've formally studied um, graduate diploma in innovation and entrepreneurship through Adelaide Uni. I've led the innovation program at uh, News Corp, the digital side of things on behalf of Australia with their you know US panel, New York Times and people like that, Times Online in the UK And um, I've implemented innovation practices in my three startups over the years, and I still have so much to learn. And ostensibly, my PhD is focused on entrepreneurship and innovation, specifically focused on the ecosystem in Australia that supports that to deliver an outcome that's innovative for veterans, which I think you mentioned in a podcast is in the US, you've got three different ways you can go when you leave the military. One of those is programs that are supported by defense and VA that push you towards entrepreneurship and small business. We don't have that here yet. We've got the Prince's Trust and a few parties doing some stuff, um, some programs out there, but nowhere near enough to actually bridge that gap. And that whole gap is going to be defined by our innovation appetite and capabilities. And this is where I think
0: that there is so much propensity for um, the veteran community to continue still serving, you know, like we've, for those of us that have left the military and left the uniform, uh, we do go into these roles for, you know, one of those reasons to get in there and serve and, and have a purposeful career. But that doesn't have to stop when we get out. Um, and I really see you know some of these amazing Australian companies like I love the story of Qantas, you know, that the fact that oh, yeah. you know, three lads, you know, the infantry, they're doing their time in the trenches, went and did a cutting edge military course, um, learned how to fly. Uh, when they came yep. back to Australia, they like saw an opportunity, jumped in, and gave it a crack. So, and I think in terms of, I was thinking about it as I was, you know, driving the kids to school this morning. Um, we need more. You see, you can be at stories in the veteran community. Oh yeah, um, because this, we are that same. Despite how you transition, and we recognise that a lot of people transition with you know, great difficulty and need great support. Um, for those people who are in that case, we need some more, see it, you can beat stories of things that you can do on the other side. And I think small business enterprise and entrepreneurship just allows people to have that in your own pace, at your own place, um, you know, tempo to get things done.
1: Yeah, I and think that's me, why it's so attractive yeah. for veterans, because you're in control and it's your own yep. pace. Um, and whilst we have this nice risk appetite, I don't think veterans have any problem with actually asking for support or going seeking support, which a lot of civilians I've come across who are my counterparts who've got the same amount of time out there in the workforce still have a reticence. And I think it's the risk appetite and the self-efficacy. We believe in ourselves as mm. veterans because of what we've been through and what we've been trained to think about ourselves and our kind of purpose. And if you can find something that's meaningful to you, it you, knocks down, you, you knock on doors with no reluctance and you have a lot more courage to actually swing and a miss, swing and a miss, swing and a miss, get a hit. Great. Move on. Yeah. Um, and that's where great things come from.
0: One of the best things I ever learned from the military was, uh, the art of rehearsal and the art yeah. of failing, the art of failing in rehearsal. Like remember before we do an activity, um, you used to have to present your idea in front of the class, um, But what you do is you grab a couple of your mates. And it it was something I had to be taught. It was like, right, go over there and practice what you're going to do in front of your mates and have your mates critique you. Have your mates tell you what's good, bad, and ugly um, and actually get it out of the way before you do it for real and before you do that presentation for real. Um, And I found it rather confronting at the start. Like, you know, I didn't want people to tell me how bad I was, but it didn't take me long before... I realized I need them to tell me how bad I am so I can fix it. So when it comes to doing the real thing, I can nail it. And for example, I had a business um, meeting opportunity just the other day with a new rep. That's a great opportunity to give us a lot of work. And it was a first, it was a first contact. Um, She works at a company called HubSpot. um, And it was the first opportunity that we've got to do a job together. And at the end of it, I said, look, do you mind if we just come together for 15 minutes? And I'd like you just to be frank and fearless on how you thought we worked together, because I'd love to work with you in the future. So is there things that we can improve or adjust here? You know, did I lean too forward? Did I say too much? Um, And that art, and then she came back to me and she gave me some really clear guidance on how I could do better. And because I asked her, she said, look, um, now how about we do another one next week? And and then like, let's see how we go then. And now we've got another meeting booked in. And, you know, and this thing is just going to snowball because we have the ability to learn, to adjust, um, to understand how to improve. I think that's so important, man. Like, and it's something that with my team, even if we do something big, I'm like, hey, tell me what I can do better there because you've got to part of yeah. my ego because it's about
1: the bigger picture. And they're about building systems for success, right? And so yeah. I've done this, let's replicate it, and now let's build on that. And I think that's the back to the T's, OET's discussion from the military. Break everything down into isolated tasks, add those tasks together, practice it enough so it becomes consciously, uh, unconsciously competence, um, and yeah. then amazing things happen. And then you build on that, and you build on that. And I think in there is eating a lot of humble pie and actually recognizing the value of feedback and uh, now I, I remember when I was in um, London for the Pitch of the Palace event, I practiced my three minutes on stage 72 times.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, the whole thing by rote in front of a range of people to the point when I was told I had three minutes and I finished it two minutes 59. And yeah, the, everyone was just like, holy crap. And I did not miss a word. And yeah. I watched the video again recently and just kind of laughed because that was instilled in me in the military. And somebody said to me, did you, you need to do it? 72 times. Cause I know exactly. Cause I was counting it off on my phone. I said, no, I could have got away with 20 or 30, but I thought the message deserved the justice of the practice. Yeah. And, and wow. yeah.
0: I love it, mate. I was just going to ask you one last question before we wrap up sure. and me, I feel like I'm the 90% guy. I do. <laughs> like I do things to the 90% mark, but sometimes I just have a bit of a struggle to get that last 10% last 10% done. And yep. one of the things I've got, you know, in my, you know, 90% world is writing a book. Okay. Yep. I've got lots of content. I've got lots of stuff. I've got some great ideas. How did you actually get to the, to finish stuff off of writing a book? You know, what, what was your practice around completing,
1: you know, writing two parts to it? Um, one of my favorite Joe Rogan, uh, snippets from his podcast is where he talks about the difference between motivation and discipline. You can be mm. motivated. Cause I know you're training for an Oxfam event, I believe hundred K yep. event. Yeah. I did yep. that a couple of times. And, um, the, the motivation to do that was because we wanted to raise money and we wanted to see if we could do it. I haven't done a hundred K's in such a short period of time since the military. So that was a few years ago. Now I did the first one and we did it in 24 hours after three months mm. of training. It was awesome. We lost half the team to injury, but we all had a crack, uh, the discipline though. The reason we were able, the two of us who finished it were able to do it and then run it a couple of years later in 16 hours was that we did all of the steps every single day was, a, I'm motivated or I'm not motivated, but stiff shit, get up, get out, get the boots on and get out yeah. the door. And that's exactly the same with writing a book. It's like, how do you eat the elephant one bite at a time? And so I created, I did a lean canvas for the book. I did what is the, um what are the kind of key topics I want to break out on one page? And then under each of those topics, what are the key elements I need? One page per chapter, and then write a page for that chapter and then put that mm. into a discipline. So I produced in one year that I did this while I was doing my postgrad at uh, QUT in Brisbane. And I produced 280,000 words in one year by following that practice. So I did my thesis, I wrote a book, and I wrote part of another book with a friend. And it was only because I got myself into a practice where if I sat in front of a blank page, I had to fill that page. And the funny thing is, as soon as you hit momentum, it's amazing how many more pages follow. So yeah, break it down like that. And um, I have had four or five friends follow the same process. And I think most of them have actually achieved their goal, not always on time, but they got there.
0: Yeah, I love it. Motivation, motivation, and discipline. It's one thing, you know, it's one, it's another thing to actually do it. Absolutely, hundred percent. So critical, man. Chris, mate, fascinating chat. It's one of the things I, you know, there's two things I love in life. Uh, well, apart from my family and basketball, the other <laughs> two things that I love in life are talking and travelling. Uh, so it's been great to be able to talk to you today and talk about travels and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, just have a bit of a poke and prod around a couple of uncomfortable areas and uh, and come back again, but. Um, how do we find more about you? How do people learn to follow, you know, Chris and where, what you're doing in
1: life? Um, if you're interested in the veteran entrepreneurship space, have a look at ru- Russell.cloud. Um, Russell is the Russell offices, is the head office for defense in Canberra, uh, l.cloud And that outlines my research. And I'm, I'm very much vying for veterans to actually weigh in on if they are entrepreneurs, um why they got started and I'm, I'm trying to capture everyone's input because the output from that will be something that helps our community and nationally hopefully um, that's probably the best way to get in touch or i'm on linkedin you can find me because i've got a really weird name chris reese edwards it stands out and uh, always open to connecting with the community and people who care about the community like yourself because i think uh, the more of us who share the stories that you were talking about earlier the more good we can actually do yeah, Chris. Really appreciate
0: your time today. Um, let's call a wrap there for the military mindset for business podcast. We'll have all of those uh, links in the show notes. Um, jump onto YouTube, have a look. Uh, if you've got any questions or comments for you know Chris or myself, and you want to you know, challenge a few things that we've been spoken about, or give us some differing opinions, or, or put your own story into it, jump on there because we can jump on and have a look and answer those questions in real time. Um, Chris, fantastic. Thank you for coming. Uh, I want to keep a track of what you're doing next because there's always something interesting around the corner. For everybody else, um, this is a Military Mindset for Business Pod. My name's Pete Liston. Out.